Hello and welcome to Open Door Films. It's been quite a while since I've mentioned what this podcast is about in my prior intros. Now, it's pretty clear this is a film podcast by the title itself, but to me personally, it's a intellectual experiment. I love having conversations with filmmakers, directors, writers, anybody who just loves cinema overall or works in cinema to some capacity. And my guest today, Kyle Otto, is a film producer, which I found fascinating because I've mostly interviewed either film film fans, film students, directors, writers, but never someone from the production angle, at least not to the extent that Kyle's worked as a producer. He currently runs Government Islands, which is an independent production company that he founded. He used to he also used to work as the head of production S, S at sorry, tongue twist at the SP Media Group which was a Paramount Pictures studio-based production. He also used to be a creative executive at Crystal Sky Pictures, which is one of the oldest independent film production companies in the entertainment business. I mean, it was founded in 1971, which, in my opinion, I mentioned in prior, in either interviews or film reviews, it was the, the 70s was the highlight of cinema, in my opinion. That's just my take. But anyway, I really enjoyed my conversation with Kyle because we mostly he mostly just... He did most of the talking while I was just trying to keep up because when it comes to film production, I mean, the business side of it just sound just sounds like a, a totally different language to me. And although I did, I mean, many of the things he said surprised me, it was rather interesting to learn more about film from the production angle. And we just had a great, we had, well, we had many great discussions regarding loads of issues like romantic comedies, the metaverse, what what films work in the market? What genres peak, and what? And I guess really just what genres become more marketable at some moments, and what helps what gravitate how the audience has or has changed over the years in response to certain films, and how even how even the price of tickets itself will affect the way certain films are turned into events rather than just casual movie experiences. Again, I'm just talking, this is me just talking as a complete amateur because I'm not a producer. I'm just a writer. I'm a film lover, and I'm always open to learn, and that's what this whole podcast is about, minus the crappy intro. Now, on to the sponsors, which is much easier to talk about than me trying to glorify my guest. Glorify. God, I even screwed that up. Anyway, the first two sponsors, well, the only two sponsors of this podcast are Fountain and Anchor. Starting with Fountain. If you like making money, well, Fountain is a pretty easy way to do that. For starters, it's a podcasting platform where you can find your favorite podcast creators. But what separates it from other podcasting platforms is, well, you can pretty much earn Bitcoin by simply listening to other podcast creators. It's no joke. You can certainly support them by streaming them Satoshis like you would send them money via Patreon, although it's a much more decentralized function with Fountain. And... In the midst of that, you can actually earn Bitcoin while you listen to them. That's right. You're basically getting your money's worth just by giving your time to the people you admire on a creative level. And then there's Anchor. For those of you who are creative and eager to create your own podcast or just share your creativity overall, I mean, which is kind of redundant because that's the whole point of Anchor. But anyway, Anchor is a podcasting platform that allows you to create a podcast for free and you get to distribute it across multiple platforms. 
And why is that so great? Well, for starters, there are loads of podcasting platforms out there. Apple, Spotify, Fountain, Lisbon, CurioCaster, Podfreeze, and much, much more. I mean, pretty much a whole shebang. I always go, I'm always going to use the word shebang in my intros. It's just a gimmick of mine. Anyway, when it comes to Anchor, it pretty much simplifies the whole process because naturally, if you're just starting out as a podcaster, you'd probably be overwhelmed, not just recording yourself and putting yourself out there creatively. You'd probably feel, oh God, look at all those podcasting platforms. I mean, there's only so many I can publish my episode on. Well, that's where you're wrong. Ain't well, at least not well, not necessarily. I mean, you could do it individually, although I wouldn't recommend it. With Anchor, though, if you just simply publish the episode on Anchor, it's going to publish it across multiple podcast avenues. That's right. Just simply record your voice, express your creativity, and all. You, and then Anchor will just distribute your episode across every platform out there, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Lisbon, CurioCaster. I've already said all those names. Why am I saying it again? Anyway, just just check out the links I've left down below to Fountain and Anchor, and get and just get started. I mean, start making money and start being creative. And speaking of money, although I did end that note on creativity, check out the Bitcoin buying links I've left down below. I mean, I always share them just so people can be introduced to Bitcoin or just buy more Bitcoin at a much more reasonable f price. Or I mean, not more well, a reasonable transaction price. I mean. The price is always fluctuating because that's the nature of its volatility. But anyway, just having the access of Bitcoin itself is a great phenomenon. And hell, if you even just sign up, you get you get a referral bonus. So it's a win-win for both of us. Anyway, enough of my babbling. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Check out my Substack where I regularly publish film reviews. Become a subscriber and uh, till next time. Okay, Kyle, it's good to meet you. You as well. I love that Ghost in the Shell poster you have in the background. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so that? Uh, before we start, I started uh, geeking out because I am an anime fan. Uh, mm. tell, tell me a little bit about yourself when you work in film. Uh, well, I'm an independent producer now. I have my own company um, called Government Island. I, uh, I started that just about before the pandemic which was a um, not the greatest time in history to leave your job and start a new company, but um, good for some reasons, because at least I was used to being working from home. So that wasn't so bad, but uh, bad in the sense that, you know, everything fell apart for, for everyone for a good six months there. And then we spent the next, you know, I spent the next year and a half kind of putting everything back together, getting everything going. Um, but, you know, to backtrack a bit, my background as a producer is, you know, I come more from the, you know, the system, so to speak, uh, you know, working through sort of the studio environment, studio system. Um, the last job I had was, you know, at a, at a company based at Paramount Pictures, um, where we kind of did both. We did independent films, you know, we developed for the studio. Um, and, uh, and so that's sort of, I have that sort of unique background, I think, where I've, I've sort of had a foot in both worlds. Um, and I think that helps a little bit when you go on to to do it on your own. Any particular independent films I would have heard, uh, that I would have heard of? You mean that I've done, like personally? Yeah. yeah. Well, that you did in your prior in your prior work when you were working for a studio. Oh man. Well, if it's for a studio, they're not independent. But uh, if they uh, the ones that we did, I mean, there's one behind me. 
Surviving the Wild. We did that. That was with uh, John Voight um, as the lead there, sort of a, you know, action adventure film we did independently. I think we distributed that Paramount International, but uh, domestically it went through the, um, the independent company. Uh, and then we've worked with, it's hard to say because I've worked with about a hundred other indie films that we would acquire in some capacity because it was also a distribution company. So we buy movies, mm-hmm. we produce movies, we would sell other people's movies. Um, so it's, it's uh, a lot. There's a lot. Okay. And with government, uh, government Island, is that the name of the production company you set up? Yeah. What so? I mean, obviously you're making independent films of government Island, but any part are, do they focus on any particular subject matter or is it just very diverse? Yeah, it's pretty diverse. I mean, what I focus on right now are, you know, for lack of a better term, like the things that I feel confident I can get made primarily is where I put my my biggest amount of you know energy. And then, you know, my secondary amount of energy is things that I think I need to find a partner or, um, you know, maybe move it up the ladder to to uh, sort, of, sort of bigger company. Um, and those are, you know, either going to be larger sort of studio fair type productions um, or it's going to be maybe television sort of falls into that same boat um, because you just need a lot more, a lot more uh, ammunition to get something like that going. So my first one that I did with um, under the banner of Government Island is for actually for Paramount Plus. It's not really independent. I developed it independently to be an independent film, um, and then it just kind of worked out that way that it it's it went through them. So that one will come out in early 2023. That's a that's a genre thriller. Are you a, are you at liberty to speak about the film to some extent, or are you, are you keeping things under wraps? No, not really. I mean, it's it's um, it, the film is called Disquiet, unless Paramount retitles it, which they totally could do. Um, and uh, it has it stars Jonathan Rhys Meyers. It's a it's a thriller. Uh, we shot it in Vancouver, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of a Dante's Inferno allegory uh, kind of film. It's it's a it's a fun it's a fun it's a fun film. Would you see it as more as an action film or something much more psychological? Because I mean, when you look think about yeah. Inferno, you can attribute you can often attribute it as a psychological as a much more psychological slash spiritual journey rather than a literal journey through hell. Correct. So I mean, this one is the sort of uh, metaphor of that, but set with a man sort of trying to fight his way out of you know a, a terrible situation. Um, so it's you know mostly set with uh within the confines of uh of a hospital setting and uh he goes on a wild ride trying to basically def- work through his demons but, oh but yeah that, that definitely has to be integral because i ask because whenever some some acclaimed piece of literature is adapted to some extent you never know where it can go i mean i i mean i guess this is not i don't know if, how popular this film is don if you've heard of dante's peak with pierce brosnan which Sure. Kind of example of how something attrib- um, tied to a piece of literature that is well acclaimed and well respected can be kind of, I don't know, it can take on a more deformed quality because that movie is basically just a disaster film. And most mm-hmm. disaster films don't exactly have a good reputation. I mean, the only one I know that has like is praised, and I haven't even seen it, is Towering Inferno. But yeah, that film has like a reputation for being an impeccable mm-hmm. film, even though it is a disaster film. Well, I, and let me clarify, uh, you know, it's not a film adapted from Dante's Inferno. It's sort of, that's the, the underlying, uh, you know, allegory there. It's not meant to be oh, a, a direct representation of it. Oh, I know. Um, I, was just, yeah. I was just curious about that because 
I know it's more, it can only be more influential because if you make it take it more literal, I, I don't know what kind of risk that would take. I mean, Dante's Inferno, yes, it's a faster read than normal books because it's really just one long, it is a long poem. No, sure. no poems, but at the same time, it's still significantly big for a book. And yeah. uh, is there any particular subject matter that you're attracted to that you, in your work with government, with government island? I mean, is there any, I mean, are... no, not one, any specific subject matter. It's more about, um, I mean, look, I, I, I'm drawn to stuff, you know, I'm drawn to films that I think are first and foremost entertaining. So, you know, that that's, and I find a wide range of things entertaining, but you know, that's, that's what I'm first and foremost drawn to. So then from that point on, then it starts, we start getting deeper into subject matter and, you know, uh, point of view and all sorts of other, other things that are super important and everything needs to have a, a point of view and everything needs to have sort of a, a you know, a, a, a defined sort of message to it of, or why is this story being told? Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, you know, they gotta be fun. They gotta be fun movies. You know, and that that is a sort of um, a broad range of things, but it's things that I, I personally would want. I want to make movies that I personally want to watch. Um, so that's number one. And how do you feel the studio? What are your thoughts on the current state of the studio system? Because you mentioned that you left you left the studio system around the time of the pandemic. Yeah, just prior. I mean, I think the well, this. I mean, I, and I and I didn't leave it. I just left, you know, to start my own company, but I still work with you know, the, with studios on various projects, but um, I mean, my, my take on it is I think we're in a pretty exciting time because there's so much content going to so many outlets. There's so many more players entering the, the, the game that have a lot more resources than traditionally were available. Um, and I think as, you know, producers and writers and directors, I think the opportunities now are so much greater than they ever were before, um, where before you did kind of have a, a stranglehold on how many things get made. I think the uncomfort, you know, or the discomfort comes from a lot of the people who already had sort of, you know, were really well established in a certain model. And then when that model starts shifting out from under them, uh, that's where things get super uncomfortable. I think for everyone else, when models shift, that's a, that's a great, that's a huge opportunity. Um, for, for new entrants to enter the space and, uh, and you know, new uh, models to be created. So I, I don't, to me, I think it's a really exciting time. And I think, I think we're in, um, we're sort of in the early stages of, you know, I think what's, uh, what, what's evolving and changing into a different kind of uh, model for how things get financed, how things get distributed, what people are looking for, uh, who's making it, who it's are they buying from. Just saying it's much less centralized. It's far less centralized, and it's also it's also there are more. It's it's, first, it's less centralized in the decision making, but it's also less centralized in the distribution too. So it's it it's it's not that you know like everything's evolved. You know, there used to be three channels, and now there's you know three hundred how, how plus oh, internet. No, I was just saying there's three hundred plus internet plus now you're doing podcasts. There's new media. There's all sorts of new outlets. I mean. With anything like that, there's there's the good and the bad of it. Um, I think it, the good in most situations, the good far outweighs the bad, but there's always going to be some negative externalities of, you know, massive change. Do you feel the more monopolistic forces like Disney 
serve as those negative influences? Well, I don't think they're a result of anything. I think they are, they, I mean, I think that already existed. And so I think now you're just seeing it in a different format, but there's still far more competition. So, mm. you know, Disney obviously has, um, you know, a huge outsized, outsized advantage on, you know, in a lot of ways because they have such a massive library. They're, you know, one of the major studios. They also have, you know, now their own streaming platform. Um, and they're, you know, they've got lots of, they've got lots of, of cash. So they're a huge player and that changes things for, for how, who else can compete. But I don't think it's, um, it's a negative and it's not an externality of the situation. I think that already existed. The difference was, you know, 10 years ago when, you know, there was Netflix and other streamers and things, they just had to license that content to them to get it on streaming platforms. But everyone knew ultimately at some point they were going to end up creating their own. Hmm. I see. I, I was not, I wasn't trying to bash Disney. I was just curious no. because in prior, yeah, prior filmmakers I've interviewed regarding Disney, they have voiced it as a bit of a concern because it does buy up a lot of content and control a lot of it to the point where it kind of makes the idea of competition, I wouldn't say redundant, but it does kind of, un, I guess it just makes it much more challenging in a sense point. I'd say yes and no. I mean, there's the, that there's a part of that. Yes. It's, they, they obviously have an outsized, uh, you know, advantage on over a lot of people uh, for what they can do versus their competitors. However, here's the other end of the spectrum, though. The, the argument for a Disney is how many people can make, uh, you know, a $300 million movie? How many people can right. do, you know, spend non hundreds of millions of on a television series? Not unless right. you have some massive crowdfunding effort. That's for sure. I've never, yeah, I've never heard of anyone getting anywhere near that in crowdfunding. Because then you also got to think, you know, you have to spend, to, to justify a spend on something you know, of hundreds of millions of dollars, you also got to be willing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars marketing it and have a plan for distribution. I mean, so you, you, it takes oh, a behemoth. Proposed, oh, I was just proposing yeah. like a hypothetical situation because yeah. nobody's ever going to think that even though, say like a filmmaker like Woody Allen, who does most, I mean, you could say that a lot of his films are crowdfunded in addition to his own, whatever budget he adds to it. It's never going to compete with the budget of something like Disney or some other major studio. Sure. And they're just not meant to. I mean, I, I don't I don't even know what a you know a Pirates of the Caribbean level Woody Allen movie would look like, but I don't think that's the, the world he wants to play in. Interesting, because <laughs> now that you make now that you uh, mentioned that those movies, because I haven't seen one since the third one in two thousand seven, but strangely yeah. enough, there was a a moment where the narrative actually delved into that kind of pseudo intellectual into some form of pseudo intellectual territory, and not I'm not saying it's the type that. Woody Allen would be attracted to, given that his movies do border on that level sometimes from time to time, especially in, in the midst of the narrative. But it was it it just I don't, I don't know how to how I put this. I guess back then they were willing to take more risks, and uh, I don't know if you know which scene I'm talking about. The scene where Jack Sparrow is in, in the third one, he's kind of in this weird purgatory-like area where he's confront he's interacting with various versions of himself, and there's something. There's very something very psychological about that, like a person confronting the various aspects of their persona. And in many ways, Woody Allen has delved into that territory. And I guess that's the closest thing to a Pirates of the Caribbean, a Woody Allen Car Pirates of the Caribbean 
you'd get if he decided to do something that crazy. I mean, did you ever see Christopher Nolan doing a romantic comedy with Jennifer Aniston? Uh, probably not. Not. I'm sure if he did, it would be amazing. But uh, you know, my point to that is because he's just a he's a great he's a great storyteller. But no, I mean they're just they're they're operating in two different worlds, and they're meant to be in sort of two different worlds. I mean they're just um, apples and oranges. But um, but I I like them both. And I like them both for different reasons. Do you think Christ- filmmakers like Nolan and even Denis Villeneuve have opened have created an avenue for for big budget filmmaking to adapt a, adopt a more auteur based approach, given that they are auteurs in many ways? But I yeah, mean, I mean, I would and I, and I would argue that James Cameron did that in a sense. But I feel like James Cameron has the more traditional mainstream aesthetic as opposed to Nolan and Villeneuve who take on a much more European approach. I mean, yes, I think like everything, you know, stories evolve, audiences evolve. I mean, audiences are smarter viewers today than they were 10 years ago when they were 50 years ago than they were, you know, and, and everything evolves with that. So the more we see something, the more we want something, you know, kind of the new version on what's familiar. And I think that's where we've started to see some of these big, you know, summer blockbuster, what used to be referred to as popcorn movies, which, you know, the convention, the conventional wisdom of, you know, many years ago was these are meant to be as broad as possible, not go over too many people's head, not, you know, touch on too many, you know, certain issues or anything, because they're supposed to be something that you, you know, that everyone can see, the whole family can see and enjoy and like, and that's a hard target to hit. Um, when you're trying to hit everything, that means you almost have to do nothing because, you know, you have to leave everything out of it. And so that's why a lot of the movies, if you look from, you know, certain eras, they, uh, there are just more of those sort of popcorn movies that don't, that don't really have that sort of auteur feel to them. And then as we evolve, though, I think, you know, audiences then expect more. I mean, we always want more. We want something different. We want a, a newer take on something. So I think once this sort of auteur versions of these big summer blockbusters started come in. Uh, I think that's sort of the new evolution we're in. I think that's what audiences expect nowadays. That's that my take on it. Even if you're doing an action film, you know, they still want a smarter action film. Or in the case of like a John Wick or something, there's almost a reason why my my take on why a John Wick, John Wick um, you know, did so well and struck a nervous because almost it was a throwback to almost a tongue-in-cheek version of what these movies were like, you know, in the 80s and 90s that, you know, sort of just, you know, very limited plot, very simple setups, and almost in a tongue in cheek, letting you them tell you that, hey, we're in on, we're in on the joke too. You know, it's, yeah, it's a little silly, but this is straight action. Wow. So that's almost like a meta, you know, intelligent version of something, you know, old that felt familiar, but also new at the same time. I actually, I'm, I'm actually glad you brought up John Wick because yeah. I've always felt that those movies were far more intelligent than people took them, gave him credit for. I mean, the, yeah. I mean, one of the actors from the film Lance Reddick considers the first one to be more cinema oriented than the others. I personally, I, I mean, I guess I could agree with him on that because the first one it does have a very original feel to it, especially when borrowing from so many forms of kung fu and Asian cinema. Sure. But, and I, I guess other forms of European cinema, especially on a stylistic level. But and even though I like the sequels more from a narrative level, because I love how they expand the world and the, and the themes of the film, which is another thing I like to discuss, because one of the things I love about the John Wick movies, even though they're you could say that they're purely action, they don't suffer from high from massive exposition, which is what a lot of action films, even with 
I mean, would you ever, would it be right for me to say that the Mission Impossible films have greater, have a greater exposition problem than John Wick? And I'm talking about the recent ones, like the, I guess they're quasi reboots in a sense, because the fourth one kind of changed the game of how these films were viewed. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if it's a problem, but there's definitely a different expectation. And I think that's the thing is like, you know, these Mission Impossible films have an expectation of intelligence to them that does mar you down in a lot of plot. You do have to, you know, get through a lot of, a lot of setup, a lot of justification, a lot of, and those films are executed really, really well. I mean, there's a reason no, why they no, 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 really, no. really well. And, and I think, I, I guess why, what I was referencing with a John, a John Wick was that I think the, the, one of the things, I mean, obviously the, the action sequences are incredible and the, you know, the cinematography and the fight choreography and all that's incredible. And uh, Keanu Reeves is a really fun action star. We've all known that. And I think all those things were great ingredients, but how it became greater than the sum of its parts was the fact that it almost had that tongue in cheek throwback to a prior style to where, you know, there was more suspended disbelief in action movies where you didn't expect all of that, you know, plot and subtext and, and you know, exposition and all of these things to, to make sense where, you know, you're just willing to go with it. And it I'm not saying that that's, you know, takes a lot of confidence in the office, but I, I think it also just, it, it was almost, it, if, if they did it straight in the sense, and this was my opinion on it, and I don't know if this was the intention or not, but if they just did it straight, like a movie like that would have been done, you know, in 1983, I don't think people would have liked it as much. But I think because they did it in such kind of a tongue-in-cheek way, where it almost calls the attention to like, yeah, we know what we're doing, but we're doing it anyway. Then, in my opinion, I think that's what made it fun. Well, that's something I'm curious about. Why do you think like, and we're only just talk, talking strictly about the first John Wick film because I think anybody can see that as each with every sequel, the action has. I wouldn't say it's 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 kind of an ex, it's been expanded to a level where there's some level of self-awareness to the disbelief of certain moments because sure i'm not saying that the action in the first one was didn't have some level of ridiculousness to it but it was definitely something i guess you could familiarize yourself more with and i'm wondering why do you think that if it was released in something like in a time like 1983 people wouldn't be more blown away than just turned off by it you're saying if it was a Released not in 1983, or yeah, why do you oh, think in 1983? I think this movie would have killed. I think everyone would have loved it. Oh. What I'm saying is, if you just did it the same way that if it was another version of this written in 1983, would have not been tongue in cheek, is my point. It would have been they More would have serious? just written it in the sense it just they would have taken themselves seriously with, with serious, lack of visual. yeah, <laughs> with lack of story and plot and exposition, like the idea of. Uh, you know, a man setting off on a on an on a whole vendetta journey against hundreds, if not thousands, of other assassins that just happen to live in this city. I mean, it takes a, a huge leap of of uh, of faith to to follow a storyline like that, and that all this is because his dog gets killed, and it was the gift from his wife. I mean, that is such a simple setup and a simple uh, inciting incident to pull you into this crazy world that you almost have to do it in a tongue in cheek kind of way. Well, yeah, um, also attributed yeah. to the fact that there's a lot of complexity behind the subtleties they 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 employ in the narrative. Because mm -hmm. you mean there, are, I mean, I guess you could say there's a lot of symbolism in the film. And even though that could be viewed as pretentious, it's focused in a way where it's not given so much attention, but it's enough to give you an idea of what kind of character 
the, what kind of characters inhabit this world, what kind of story they're really trying to tell, what it's really about. I mean, I look at, the, I mean, my personal favorite is the third one because I think it's a good metaphor for individual, for a man's form of individuality, as well as why John, I mean, I guess why John Wick does the things he does. I mean, I guess I could say is the most profound moment in that film is when he's asked by the character the high elder of the high the high elder of the high table why do you want to live and i once i had a discussion with a friend about john wick of how as a character i think he suffers from some death drive he's good at doing he's he's more functional when he does things that could potentially kill him yet he claims that he wants to just be left alone in peace and yet he and he does such a good job of fighting off enemies or even performing actions that pretty much guarantee that he will either die or be killed by someone almost like he has some self-destructive drive and the third film just presents in a way where he the whole story is really like a self-redemption story in many ways because obviously the first film i mean his wife dies and he feels like it's some form of punishment some form of fate punishing him because i mean he did work for a criminal underground organization and you just can't walk away from that even if you do manage to walk away from it in a way where it's wouldn't, I, mean, I wouldn't apply the term legal in that sense, but within the scope of the omertas, these organizations are based off because they never let you, these these kind of organizations don't let you leave unless they either kill you or give you a suicidal task and you accomplish it and you pretty much earned your freedom. Sure, I sure. know. Very. Uh, I hope I my 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 uh, answer didn't come off as very heavy handed. I guess. I guess I just, no, no, no. I do enjoy these films that much that I I like analyzing them from that angle. I think that's that's part of the fun. That's you know one of the reasons why why uh, we all love them to be able to do that. Mm. To take something as as you know for most people as a kind of like just a surface fun film like John Wick and break it down. And I think that's why part of the success of of that film. Do you think There's that a hundred other people have tried to do the same thing and actually way more than that and and failed? You never heard of them, and that yeah. one broke out for a reason. I think a lot of action films are kind of breaking out in that similar sense where they're gaining a greater intellectual traction of which to explore and analyze them. I mean, I mean, do you follow any YouTube filmmakers just out of intellectual curiosity? Because there was this one called Patrick Willem who made a video on Ethan Hunt from the Mission Impossible series. And he proposed something that nobody ever thought about, that he might just be a crazy adrenaline junkie. Mm -hmm. No, I'm, I'm not familiar, but um, that's interesting. I mean, and uh, I guess I wanted to further, I guess what I wanted to further ask you is what other types of genres do you think are, are rising significantly as opposed to just the action film on that, on that level? Well, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say what's rising significantly. I think what you can look at is what hasn't been made as much recently. And then, you know, that was, you know, made in the past. Um, and maybe that'd be a, a, an angle. I think, you know, one of the things that, that sort of, uh, the market, there's a hole in the market on is erotic thrillers. I don't think that, um, those haven't been made really well in a while. Those used to be, you know, bread and butter part of the studio slate, you know, your basic instincts and films like that were, were hugely successful. And then I think that just kind of, um, a lot of, a lot of studios moved away from them. And I think the, there's been some lower budget ones made and, maybe even acquired and put on Netflix and things. And I think with some of the popularity that some of those have received, um, 
I think it's a good indication that there's still a huge audience for for that genre that just hasn't been served. So that's one thing. I think. Um, Any particular examples? No, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head for what these movies are called. I just I see the the numbers on some of these, and they have performed pretty well uh, in streaming. And that's so far been the only place where, in recent years, that seems to be um, you know acquiring films like that. And so they're they're and they do it because they're servicing a hole in the market that they see. Um, but I just haven't seen them done at a higher budget level in a long time, mm. at, a, at a high at a higher budget. I think it's been mostly some indies here and there that have done it, and then they've got acquired and they've been released um, either through Netflix or you know I think the closest thing um, I haven't seen the film, but maybe maybe the Hulu film with um, Ben Affleck and um, for, I'm blanking on her name, but um, you know I I think maybe that one could have qualified as a erotic thriller, but I haven't seen it. But I just I I think that there's a hole in the market there that um, I think we're going to see more of those uh, starting to come back because they're just um, they're they're a genre that people do respond to. Are there any genres you'd personally like to see make a better a similar return? Uh, I mean, I I think um, I don't know that there's really anything else that I think romantic comedy is probably one that that has uh, kind of gone away from the studio level for the most part. They're, they're starting to come back a little bit, but I mean, we entered a period, you know, a decade ago where, you know, a lot, a lot of studio funding sort of started getting funneled into bigger films because, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the wisdom there is, um, you know, rather than making 30 films and knowing that eight of them are gonna just barely break even or maybe even lose money, couple of the smaller ones are going to break out um, we should just funnel all of that energy that funding but also you know it's opportunity cost it's possibility cost it's other factors that they're looking at to say well if our staff our crew our resources are being spread out over all these smaller films that are bringing in you know smaller amounts and some of them are losing every now and then one wins big um, then they started saying well you know let's funnel this into these larger budget films where, you know, people would refer to those, you know, as tent poles, tent poles, you know, big IP, um, you know, a lot of ancillary uh, benefits, merchandising possibilities, spinoffs, TV. And so that sort of became the focus. And so while we've gotten a lot of really great franchises out of that, we've gotten a lot of really big, you know, films out of that. Um, what we lost was some of those, you know, the, that $40 million romantic comedy that would have been made, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, that just doesn't nowadays. I personally um, think an audience would identify with those films, a current, a modern audience would identify with those films that much anymore, especially given the time that, I mean, you, you've said this happened over a decade ago. And uh, well, I mean, I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago on the film 500 Days of Summer, and the two critics who were analyzing it were talking about how the optimism in the film feels kind of bizarre because it feels like, because it was made around the time of the 2008 financial crisis, that it just feels kind of odd that it doesn't adopt, it has this optimism that seems kind of alien. And I feel that many romantic comedy films had that prior to the, that time. And if you were to make a romantic comedy now, it would probably have to have a different take that I don't think that you don't think there's a market for. Well, let me, let me try to parse out some of what you said there. I think part, you know, yes, no, nothing that would have worked 20 years ago verbatim is going to work exactly today. Of course not. 
but that means like anything, you know, there's, there are point of views, there are references, there are certain takes on things, certain character traits that are more tied to the time, but the, but the genre of romantic comedy is much bigger than that. The genre of romantic comedy is, it's a comedy that has romance. And that's pretty simple. We, everyone can relate to that. So I think that's a pretty, uni there's universal themes that tie into it. And there's a lot of, you know, some of the classic films people love are romantic comedies. So I think the idea that it wouldn't work now, I think is, um, I, I think it also just doesn't prove out. I think there's, take Hallmark, for example. Hallmark is one of the only places servicing that audience. Mm. And, and they get something like, you know, more viewers during their countdown to Christmas than the Super Bowl gets. It's insane. So Jesus. there's this whole audience out there that isn't really getting serviced because the studios used to service them with these films, you know, date night films, um, you know, obviously it will certainly skew more female, but some of my favorite films are romantic comedies. I mean, Wedding Crashers is a romantic comedy. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, films that fall into that category that most people might not even think about so much, but, um, but some of the classic ones that we could all sit here and reference uh, would definitely, definitely fall under that umbrella. I think they haven't been serviced as much in recent years. And because of that, places like Hallmark, Netflix has gotten into the game a little bit, but they're usually doing it on a lower level. Um, you know, so most of the romantic comedies I think are out in, you know, that are out available are going to be these, you know, sub five, sub $3 million films. They're just really, it's hard to achieve it on that sort of grand scale that we were all accustomed to that sort of how to lose a guy in 10 days that sleepless in Seattle or wedding sort of those, those classic or wedding crashers which you know is more comedy than romance but obviously it has the you know it kind of evolves into a typical rom-com yeah it is it if you look at the way where it was filmed it kind of does have some somewhat of a semi-large scale and i'm curious since you brought up the film because i haven't seen it in such a long time that what would you think how do you think a film like that would be received now today in the culture you mean verbatim i don't know it's hard to say but i mean I think the film like that would be received extremely well. I think it's a hilarious movie. Uh, I think that I don't. I don't think people don't like laughing anymore or don't like watching people fall in love anymore. Or I think that those are universal things that. Still I guess I'm asking, I guess yeah. I'm asking because I was I was listening to an interview of Todd Phillips, the director of The Hangover, who also directed Joker, about how he was very skeptical yeah. about approaching comedy because of the way com what's interpreted of being comedic nowadays. And you could say there's a lot of political correctness to that. And I'm just. Well, I think that's what he's getting at. And I'm assuming I didn't hear his comments or, or read them, but I'm figuring that's what he's probably talking about because he's probably taken a lot of criticism for some jokes. I mean, but that's true today. I mean, whatever, there's going to be jokes that are made in TV shows today that, you know, 15 years later, we'll look back on and be and say like, Ooh, you know, yeah, the cancel culture wasn't as strong back in 2005 as it is now. 100%. But even in 2005, there's, there's things that they, you know, Todd Phillips wouldn't have even said in 2005 that maybe he would have said in 1995. So, I mean, there's, yes, it's definitely been accelerated in recent years of, you know, and with social media and, and things that get, you know, shared and spread much faster. But I don't think it's really much different than it ever has been in the sense of what audiences find tasteful and distasteful, what people find, uh, you know, funny, what they don't find funny, where the you know, sacred cows are in any culture, what's protected, what isn't. I think that it's always evolving. Uh, and I think that's, pro I'm, I'm assuming that's what he was referring to. I don't know. I mean, but 
obviously there's still comedies being made today so it's not it's not like it's impossible to do mm. I was, and I guess, and I wanted to ask you, since you mentioned the romantic comedy, another genre I've been curious about and its status is uh, the Western. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I grew up watching Westerns. I like Westerns. Um, I think, again, you know, anytime we see sort of something leave the market a bit, you know, it's, it could sometimes be because less people are, 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 after it and desiring it or sometimes it could be for other reasons like i said with the you know they didn't stop making rom-coms because people didn't like rom-coms the studios stopped making them because they just didn't fit into that model they were you know these 30 40 million dollar movies that weren't going to make a billion so they'd rather put that into twilight you know it's just it's a different way of it's financial models not what consumers wanted necessarily and so i think that's what left a hole and i'd say that's probably true to a large extent with westerns and I think the good example of of how you know a, a genre is underserviced at the at the highest level, then I think gets proven out when you know you see the success of something like Yellowstone, 1883, how they become huge, you know, something that is completely you know bolstering the launch of of Paramount Plus, it seems. Um, and the other one was on Paramount Network, but you know that's because of that success, I think it kind of shows why there's a, there's a huge audience out there that still loves this genre and still, you know, wants to see it. So um, I'd say that there's different, there's definitely a, 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 an opening for more, more in that space, but like anything you, you do too much, you get saturated. If you try to do it exactly like you did 40 years ago, people weren't going to like it either. Everything evolves. That certainly explains why they have a more neo-Western approach. I mean, even I mean, they're more, much more modern and even films like Logan, which do take place in the future, have that neo-Western influence with sure. the narrative. Sure. And I was curious if you ever imagined them doing something, a Western akin to, I mean, equivalent to that of, I say, a Sergio, a Sergio Leone or Clint Eastwood film, because I guess the closest we got to that was, I mean, Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained, which you can see a lot of Sergio Leone in the in, weave within the narrative and the style. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. I mean, if you're if you're asking, do I see those films being sort of made again? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure who's the one that's making them, but I think you know, off of it's a cyclical system. I think you know, we go away. You know, systems go away from things, but then someone comes back and proves that there's still an audience for it, and then more people say, well, why don't we have one of those? And they start developing it, and then they start you know coming out in more places until you know everyone starts chasing the new thing. Uh, you know, I, I definitely would say that um, you'll see some some of those probably come back in some capacity. I'm not sure who's the one that's going to do it, but uh, simply because there's an audience out there. And are there any particular genres? And again, this is just a personal question from your point of view. Do you feel less optimistic about it might be dying out? A, a genre that I think is dying out? Yeah, just your personal take. If there's any particular genre you feel the market is shrinking for. the market is shrinking for i mean that it's it, yeah it's market is shrinking i guess i phrased that question well i would say it's it's you know everything is temporary so even if something is shrinking it, it's shrinking now until until you know 12 years from now when someone does does one and it does well and then everyone says oh yeah we forgot we used to do those so you know i, I don't know that there is any one thing that is going away i think we're actually more in a period of time where things are coming back 
because there's so many outlets and everyone's trying to find these sort of, um, you know, ways to compete and they want, you know, niche content. If they, like you said, if you can't compete with Disney plus on all of their stuff, but maybe you can have alternative offerings that, you know, make your app, you know, your app, your streaming service, uh, you know, um, seem appealing to, to the, either those same subscribers or other subscribers. I mean, you, you know, so I think that there's, we're not, I don't know that we're in a place of losing. I think we're in a place right now of gaining is my take. I see. And I guess I'm curious as to your own work on film. In addition to being a producer, have you ever written any scripts of your own? I have, but not um, mostly when I was coming out of college. I did it because uh, I did a comedy writing program uh, when I went to, I went to school at uh, Columbia College, Chicago. And then that brought me out to, to Los Angeles. And I did a producing program at Raleigh Studios and a comedy writing program. And uh, part of that was we had to write a, you know, a, a script, a spec script off of it. Um, so I did, I wrote one, I wrote one for that and, uh, that was a fun experience, but I, I never really, um, intended to be a professional writer. So I, I was always planning on going the producing path. Um, and so, I, you know, I've written a, a couple others over the years, mostly in development with other writers. Mm. Um, but, uh, but that was more in a case of just almost being so hands-on in development that we were just writing it together. And in terms of comedy, what type of comedy are you mostly drawn to? Because, I mean, there, again, there are various forms of comedy. I mean, you mentioned Wedding Crashers, which is not a comedy film you would c compare to, say, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days or When Harry Met Sally. It's much more raunchier, much bolder sure. than the risks they're taking. And I'm curious as to whether that's the type of comedy you're particularly attracted to that you think there is a lot of creative development. And, I mean, a lot of... You know, I, you know I, don't, I don't know that there's any one... Is any one type, you know, it's not maybe not as very satisfying answer, but I'm I'm attracted to things that are funny. And so, you know, I can I can find uh, the raunchiest comedian funny and I can also find Jeff Foxworthy funny. You know, there are two very different ends of the spectrum. But, you know, if 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 you can say something that, uh, you know, that makes me laugh, I mean, I'm going to enjoy it. So I, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, there's the the wedding crashers genre of that more sort of adult, raunchier style comedy or bridesmaids or something in that category. Um, you know, I'm definitely enjoy that, but I also enjoy you know subtle family. Modern Family is a great example. I mean, that's you know not raunchy really or or put, you know pushing too many boundaries. It's but it's very smart and um, and uh, you know so I I don't know that there's any one thing I would say I'm most attracted to. It's more of um, like I said, kind of even about what genres I like is when it comes to comedy, if it makes me laugh, I like it. If it's, you know, when it comes to other genres, if it entertain me, entertains me, I like it. Um, Go ahead. That's, I know. Yeah, it might not be, that's not the most satisfying answer, I'm sure, but. Uh, no, no, you did, a great, you did a great job of answering the question. And I'm glad you actually brought up Modern Family. I've never seen this show, but one, I've only, I've only like caught glimpses of it. And the one thing I noticed was the documentary like feel it has, and it's very experimental. And I wanted to know if you ever thought, I guess, if you ever thought other comedies are taking a similar approach, a much more experimental approach. Well, that was, it's not so experimental anymore, but there was a, a period of time there where, a, a, and, I, and, I, and I don't know if this is the case, but I would, I think it's probably most attributed to The Office. And it was sort of that, you know, mockumentary style uh, filming that sort of, um, 
we had all gotten a little bit accustomed to in the era. I mean, you think when the office was early 2000s, I think when it came to the US and and that's, uh, you know, it's that style of handheld, um, you know, because if you think everything's evolved, right? We, we started comedies were three camera soundstage, laugh track. Mm -hmm. Then we evolved to the single camera um, where they're shot more like films, no laugh track. So, you know, the ones that were famous today would be like, you know, New Girl or The Mindy Project or shows like that where they're single camera, no laugh track, shot like a film, um, multiple sets. You know, they're not on just one soundstage. And, um, and there's that. And then I think the, then the, the third category that started that I think I believe was probably made popular by The Office, but maybe, maybe there's, you know, something that predates that was that mockumentary. And what that did was it was a format that we kind of started to understand which is that sort of um, handheld, you know, break the fourth wall, look at the camera, even pull people aside for interviews and almost never really explain who the hell is shooting this, who's interviewing you, why are you doing, you know, but you just go with it, but it helps move the story along. It helps for the comedic uh, value of, of getting to break that fourth wall and gives us like an insight into it. And, and, it, and when it works, it worked really well. And then I think after that, there's other shows that tried to do that because, um, you know, it was, working for some. And I think those didn't work so well and you saw it done poorly. Um, and, I, and, I, and I don't know that that's a style that would be, I would say is make, uh, making a, a comeback. I think that's probably come a little bit more out of fashion, I would guess in recent years. Um, I just think because we saw it and we saw it done really well in a few circumstances, the office and uh, modern family to be like two prime examples of it. Um, and then sometimes when you see something done so well, that's different uh, for a period of time, I think then anything else just looks like an imitation. See, and I'm now that you, since you brought up the idea of the laugh track, I'm curious as to what, what, how you feel that attributes to comedic value, because I've never liked the laugh track. I've always had. I mean, I mean, I'll still like I still like something like Seinfeld, which clearly has sure. a laugh track. But well, that's what they had a live audience. So. You know, that's the difference is like, you know, those shows, those shows in the 90 or even predates the 90s, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s that had, were shot in front of a live audience. You know, there's a difference between, you know, the laugh track of when someone's just walking down the street in Times Square and sees a bird and the audience just erupts with laughter. Well, we know that's a laugh track, but on a soundstage where they're performing live and the audience is kind of feeding into the show, I think that's when it worked the best because it was almost like we at home were watching a live show. But even with um, the audience, aren't, they, aren't there certain instances, instances where they're told to specifically laugh at particular moments and you don't think that kind of takes away from the value of the comedy? Well, my personal opinion, yes. But I think that, you know, I'm looking at this as someone who's, you know, 35 years old in 2022, uh, you know, who, who I, I grew up with that sort of as the, as the benchmark when I was a kid of that's what, you know, television comedies were. And I've kind of been through the evolution. And so to me, no, I, I don't really, any, anything that's made today, I'm not interested in really watching something with a laugh track or even on a soundstage, three camera shoot, live audience. I just don't, I don't find those, that style of humor as funny. You think it's pretty, but it's become outdated. I, it just feels outdated that's all. And that's okay. Um, but, you know, you go back and you watch where some of these shows from the, you know, seventies, 80s I mean they're really funny um but there was you know they had great writers and that was just that's where the talent went and that's uh, that was the style and that's what worked in that time um 
And so I, I think it's just, we've, you know, the, the audiences have evolved a bit, what their expectations are. And I think, you know, the, the content's kind of evolved with it. It's inter- that was interesting that you said that because I, I'm, I'm still amazed that some shows still employ the laugh track. I mean, it seems like the very, I mean, more, more popular shows are applying the more mockumentary like aspect. And uh, I mean, I don't know if you, would you say that a show like Curb Your Enthusiasm by Larry David is a mockumentary in many ways? It's a, because it feels different to the office and something. Yeah, it's like not a mock- I don't know that we would call it a mockumentary. I'm not sure they might have another term for this. I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of got that Veritas style, but he's never addressing the camera. He's never being interviewed. Mm. He's so it's not really that mockumentary style. Like we're not assuming there's a documentarian with him. It's really just sort of made like we're, it's made to feel like we're just following this guy in his life. Mm. And I think that's why it kind of has that handheld style feel. It's just sort of in the room with them. And it all, it always, you know, it feels pretty unscripted because I think for the most part, it, it, it probably is. And, um, and so I think that's why it, it does, you know, it is so different than most other things on television, but it's also Larry David. So, yeah, I mean, it's, a, I mean, yeah. I, I haven't seen that much of Seinfeld in comparison to Curb Your Enthusiasm. And I guess I, I tend to gravitate towards Curb Your Enthusiasm more. I mean, definitely it seems like they take much more risks in terms of the content. Well, sure. That's just two totally different, totally different things. Apples and oranges. It's, you know, it, Seinfeld was from the, you know, where did it run? Then through the nineties for the most part, I believe. And, I think and it's late, just, you know, late, late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. Late eighties, nineties. And, and it's a network, you know, primetime comedy, uh, live show, totally different than, you know, 20 years later, Larry David doing, uh, you know, something for premium cable. Um, they're just making two very different shows. Even the pacing of Curb Your Enthusiasm is kind of odd when you look at it, because when you look at a show like Seinfeld, I mean, how many se- Seinfeld had like eight or nine seasons, yet you can be certain that they were released on a yearly basis. Yet with Curb Your Enthusiasm, there have been times where there have been large gaps in it. And that just makes me wonder about the, the fact that it still maintains an audience, even after large, you think that large time gaps between each season would kind of distance it from the audience. I don't know if that's, a, if that's yeah. a, the right assumption to make because it just feels untraditional from a, a sitcom standard. Yeah, I mean, definitely it's untraditional, but I think it's a, okay to be, one, I think, you know, viewing habits are totally different nowadays than they were in the 90s or early 2000s or any time prior to that. Because, it, you know, during Seinfeld's era, you know, it was appointment television. If, if you weren't, you know, there at, I don't know what time it came on, say it came out at eight o'clock or 8.30, for the new episodes. If you weren't there at 8 or 8.30, you missed it. Mm. That's it. And you might catch a rerun some other time, uh, another, you know, some other day later on. But that's those shows. I mean, they're, you know, they had usually what, like 21 or 22 episodes a season, you know, lasted what, 10 years. So, you know, 200 and some episodes. And most of them are relatively contained. They don't really build on each other too much. You know, they're, they're, they're not episodic in that way. They're going to be more, um, you know, bottled up per episode per situation for the most part so if you miss one two three it's not the end of the world you know comedies of today because of the way we view television now because we have you know in the early 2000s or you know towards 2010 i think or maybe before before that when you know some households started getting on demand well then all of a sudden you could miss it you didn't have to record it or dvr or like when i was a kid you know my mom putting you know vhs's in and you know, setting the timer on the 
on the VCR to record X Files or something. Like, yeah, it took. You might do that for a couple shows if you were serious about it, but you didn't do it with everything. Then on demand started kind of popped up in the maybe early two thousands, I think, and some households got it, and so it started sort of changing. Well, okay, it's not as much of an appointment anymore. So now we can be a little bit more free in telling a continued story because they're going to go back and watch the old episodes. And then we've now into the place where we're at mostly app viewing. Uh, are you more interactive storytelling? Well, and that's also people are watching it through, through apps, through streaming, through, you know, you're, you're able to binge a whole season. You, you're not, you're not skipping around episodes anymore. Like you used to just have to do. And so I think because of that, it's, it's two things because of that, we get, stories that evolve over time. So you have longer season arcs, you have longer character arcs. Um, so I think it helps with the storytelling of it. Um, we get better, more in-depth stories, more expensive shows because you know, you're able to tell bigger, grander stories that people are actually gonna watch. 30 years ago, you couldn't do a Game of Thrones because you know people had soccer practice for three of those episodes and would have no idea what's going on. So, you know, it, 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 technology evolved and i think that sort of changed how the writing and how things like that um were able to be produced so that that's why i think you know in, in something like uh curb your enthusiasm you can have years go on in between and it doesn't really matter that much it just makes the audience more excited when a new one drops because you know they, it wasn't appointment television anymore it's not like they've now 30 years ago if you didn't have if you didn't take up that slot in someone's tuesday night some other show did and now that's what they watch on Tuesday night at that slot. So to get it back three years later would be impossible. Plus you had advertisers, you had a whole, there's a whole bunch of externalities there. Mm. Nowadays you drop it on HBO, I guess HBO max now, and everyone's excited and they watch it on their own time. Even if it's but like, I think that's why. Even if it's almost like 10 years since the last season. It just makes them more excited. Mm. And I guess, I mean, I'm pretty sure you agree with this view that many, many of the guests I've interviewed have, have pretty much said that TV is pretty much the new cinema. And I'm just curious, what the, what do you think about that idea that television is adopting this idea, this idea that it's the new cinema versus people actually going to the theater? Because I feel, I certainly feel that people are going less and less to movie theaters nowadays. I mean, I don't know that I have like, I can tell you what I feel. What I feel is, Television quality is dramatically, you know, higher today than it ever was. And that's because of the reason we just talked about. Now it's less appointment television. They try to create events out of it by, you know, in incorporating social media or spoilers or things like that to where, you know, when a Game of Thrones comes out, if something gets that big, people want to watch it when it happens immediately because they they know social media is going to ruin it for them. But outside of those very few circumstances, most stuff is viewable on your own time, which allows... People, wait, an audience. You know, um, wait, an audience knows that social media will will ruin it. I thought that I figured that most audiences would just would gravitate towards social media, regard tied to that particular product. No, no, no. What I mean is, what I mean is, if you're gonna, if 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 the season finale of Game of Thrones is on, was on, for example, mo that's the closest thing to appointment television that you could get nowadays because of the fact that people would know social media is going to spoil it for them. If they don't watch the episode and they're scrolling Instagram and they see something happened to Jon Snow because 10 million people are talking about it, it's going to spoil it. That was my point. Whereas most things, you can just watch it on your own time. That's the closest thing to appointment television. I think we kind of have, with, with, I mean, outside of, you know, 
game shows or sports or something like that. But um, so I, th I think that's, that's part of it. One, the quality level is so much higher because you're able to tell these sort of more, more cinema quality stories that are told over longer periods of time. So I would say it's more like, it's more like um, TV is becoming like the novel of today like you can tell these episodes are more like chapters and they build on each other and you can and you know you're getting these larger budgets because you're getting more eyeballs on them than you would have in the past have been able to get uh for something like that and so i i think that to say it's becoming the the cinema no i think it's just catching up with cinema quality mm. i don't think it's replacing cinema I, sure i think you know some some people are gonna stay home and watch stuff on television instead of going to things. But I, I think they're just, they're two different experiences for the most part. I think, I don't, I wouldn't blame the rising quality of television to the, to people going to the theater less. I would say that, that they're, in my opinion, I think they're kind of a little bit unrelated. I think if, when you go to the theater, it's because you wanna go out, you wanna go do something most of the time. And the, and the theater, I think, still represents for a lot of people a night out that's, you know, Some becoming less. Yeah, it's becoming less within everyone's grasp, you know, as tickets get a little more expensive. But, you know, you think of like a family of, you know, four going out, you know, what, what can you do on a Saturday evening with your parents or your kids or other people as a group and go do a shared experience for like 50 bucks? Not many things. And so I, I still think that that's, that that doesn't change because you can't really replace that by stealing it on the internet or you or you know watching some other tv show of high quality because you're not replacing that experience it, it's gonna you know might take some people away but i think that's the difference and and i think the thing with theaters is it's just um i mean again this is my opinion i don't have any like research on this my opinion is that is that i, I think we're just kind of getting it here this is yeah, a podcast where is completely yeah. well yeah, sure. I think we're we're just getting to a place where, you know, the stuff that's going to succeed mostly in theaters are going to be the the things that are, you know, like you take take Top Gun for example. Yeah. Watching that, no matter what size television you have, it's a what your setup oh. is. It, it, watching that in a theater is a completely different experience than watching it at home. So you know, there then and notice how well that movie's done. And so I think you know, there's there's some things that just can't be replaced. But you know, watching um you know some family drama film in the theater versus watching at home like yes i i you know as someone who went to film school and all that i mean i definitely agree that it's better in the theater but is the experience so much better than watching it at home Someone's maybe not a different preference of watching an independent yeah. film that you would have because you, you certainly would definitely have more respect in watching an independent film in the theater as opposed to home sure. but yet a regular audience member would probably even if they have an interest in that subject matter which is probably unconventional subject matter like a lot of independent films absolutely and the problem is home. they they're the same price so when you're putting you know marvel's endgame up against you know i don't know pick a pick a title an indie okay. title a family I, drama high life sure you put those up against each other it's the same ticket price and you've got your you know, whoever it is you're with and you're trying to have, you know, it's almost like the greatest value you can have on a night out. You're probably going to pick the one that costs $260 million to make than the one that costs, you know, whatever. I don't know what High Life costs. And leaves you with less million to make. And leave you with less mental scars than a film like High Life. Sure. Sure. 
so there, I mean, obviously there's that part of it, you know, cause you know, again, back to entertainment versus, you know, uh, just storytelling. And, um, and I, so I think that's part of the thing with, with theaters. I don't think theaters are dying. I think they're changing. That's my, that's my opinion. That's my take. I think they're evolving into, um, I think we're probably going to have to split a little bit. You know, I think these mega temples things, I don't think it's sustainable that they, they cost the really? same price as uh, I don't think it, it it's sustainable for them to cost the same price as, you know, whatever new Noah Baumbach film, you know, is coming out uh, that's going to, you know, that premiered at Sundance and, you know, they're, they're just two different things. And so I think, you know, my take on this is like, is also, I think they'll have probably longer theatrical runs. I think they need longer theatrical runs. So they don't need to recoup all that money in three weeks. Uh, you know, you don't have some studio trying to, it's an old, it's kind of an old model. I think that they should have longer runs, higher ticket prices and make it more of an event. And I think some theaters are starting to do that with, you know, you know, 4D theaters and plusher seats and food and all sorts of stuff. They're trying to make it more of an experience to, to get the value proposition higher. And then I think, you know, but there's still that whole audience. You can also see that in the yeah. limited selection of movies playing in those types of theaters. Just go to your iPick. I mean, how many, I mean, I haven't been to an iPick in a long time, but how many films do you see on their roster? Very For sure. Few. And they're obviously going to put the ones on there that they think are going to sell the most tickets uh, because, you know, they're in the business of making money as well. And so, you know, I think that that's sort of going to be the split in my, I, this, I don't know if this is what's going to happen, but that's kind of what I feel just makes the most sense is, you know, you might go to your, you know, your iPix or maybe your Arclight or whatever for these sort of big tent pole. The, the experience is bigger and better. You know, the, there's food, there's all these things that make the value offering feel like it's matching your ticket price. And it's maybe you're not in a rush. Yeah, no, it's, it's more much, of an evening out. Yeah, and it's a much more rational assumption from where you're going because it's not like anybody would be excited to pay the same amount of money to watch a film and say something like the metaverse which is yeah. which looks bizarre to start to start with the idea because it kind of just takes away from the experience overall in many ways. I don't know. I don't see, I don't see much optimism in that. You're talking about, you're talking about like Oculus and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I don't, I, I certainly don't, don't get it. I mean, I think that there's um, I, obviously that's a whole other conversation, but I think that uh, it's, it's it, you know, it's one, it's that area where I think everyone sees that there's obviously something there and it's going to be game changing in some way. I just haven't yet heard like the how that makes sense to me. I don't understand the idea of when you know seeing a commercial about imagine you could <laughs> you could attend a concert but never leave home and she your friend looks like a giraffe. Like to me, that's not attending a concert. That's you know that's playing a video game. Uh, that wouldn't have the same. There's you know almost like a, 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 acting like there's there's no value to being with people or being somewhere um, that, you know, just putting on a headset will, will completely replace that. I think is, it sounds silly to me, but I think there's like other applications. Yeah. yeah. It feels like there's an other over. applications that are great. That was a good example you made about the idea of like going to a concert, but never leaving home because it feels like an over sensationalized version of buying the CD of that live performance. Right. Just listening to it. And I did that like 15 years ago when I listened to a live performance of Lincoln park on a CD. I mean, that was basically, you could say that that's similar to the metaverse in some sense, because you're not leaving home, but you're listening to a, a, a CD that has the, uh, in the background, you hear the audio from the audience. 
Sure. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, I think like, you know, with these being shot on, you know, through these like sort of um, uh, virtual reality or Oculus or AR or all these different, different things that are being produced. And there's a lot of, I know concerts are a good avenue for this and it does allow people to see the show who couldn't otherwise join or be around the world. Like all that's cool. I just think the idea that it's going to replace in person oh god, it, no. to me is silly or the idea that it's even of, of, of even similar value in any situation is silly, but is it of more value than the CD? Yeah. It's, it's, it's somewhere in between where it's cool, but not, you know, not newer and better. More, it has a much more interactive yeah. component than the CD yeah. example sure. I mentioned, but not to the, the more human one that you mentioned where you actually go to the concert physically and experience yeah. the more, the, the ecstasy of the event. But I think there's obviously it's going to be a huge part of our lives in some way, somehow. I'm not sure what that is yet. I don't think anyone really is. Are you more optimistic sure. or pessimistic about it? I think it's like a lot of things. I think it's, you know, what what we think, what a lot of people think it's going to be used for at, right now, I think is probably not the case, but it's going to be some other newer thing that we're going to all love that is just not being talked about yet. That's my assumption. I don't know. But that's my guess is it's kind of like a lot of things where the, you know, like anything when it's first created, you can only put it into the boxes of stuff that you're already doing and how it's just going to either replace or enhance the things that you're already doing instead of thinking about the stuff that you haven't even conceived. So when people create, you know, the internet, you know, came to be in like, you know, for the most, for the most of, of, of people in the you know early mid nineties, right? You know, first people that you got email. And, and, th and that was like, basically the first thing was replacing mail with digital mail. Mm. And that was the first big hurdle. And now that seems so silly and laughable. We have social media, we're watching movies, we're, we're doing all sorts of stuff. We have, that, instant, like, we have instant payment apps as opposed to check. Right. I mean, it's, it's, replaced, it. it's changed everything. It, but it changed everything in other ways and new things came along and this concept of social media and the concept of, of video streaming and game, like all that seems so foreign. I mean, I remember seeing articles when I was a kid, like saying one day you'll watch movies on the internet. And like that, that was said to be like a, a shocking uh, slogan that some person was prognosticating and it sounded far-fetched. And, you know, of course now that's total reality for seems like most people. Oh, you can even... So I, yeah. You know, oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say that's kind of where I see that's what I feel about virtual reality and, and AR and, and glasses and things like that is I think we're probably at the stage right now where we're we're thinking about replacing uh paper mail with digital mail. I think that's where we are right now. Hell, even podcasts is that functioning as a yeah. is actually becoming more mainstream as a form of media as opposed to more traditional media. Sure, but it's still a one for one to a degree. You know, you're, you know, it's, it's still, it's replacing paper mail with digital mail. It's saying it's, you know, two people talking on screen. Uh, you should just have to go through all these gatekeepers and you had to be a light, you know, a show that was on a network or what all these things. And now you can just do it. But there's, so less regulation. there's much less regulation. I mean, that's what I mean. It's, it's just a different version is all I'm saying. It's a different version of something we're familiar with. Well, I, I see that, you're, that your time is coming up, and I wanted to ask yep. you on a final note, are there any other new developments from this more decentralized approach to filmmaking that you are very optimistic about? Because you mentioned that in the beginning that 
when I asked you about the studio system and your thoughts on it, are there any other developments you didn't mention that you just feel very hopeful about? Yeah, I feel super hopeful about the more avenues that um, are available for people. So, I, you know, there's there's far more places uh, that are that, you know, want to be in the game of, of making things, of creating things, of, you know, financing things uh, you, where you're not just going to the same, you know, smaller bucket of sources that, that used to exist. And I think that's good for everybody. Um, I like that, you know, genres are evolving a bit, what the audiences are wanting, you know, are, are, I think are, I think because of, you know, more of a, a, a tech approach to how the streamers operate, they almost sort of are the first, you know, canary in the coal mine on a lot of things because they have real-time data of what people are watching and what people want, um, as opposed to like going off of Nielsen data from, you know, the, what people used to do years back. And, and so I think because of that, you know, we have a, a faster shift when, you know, things aren't... Um, being serviced as much as they should, or there's underserved audiences or, or things like that. I, th I think outside of it, I think some of the new exciting things are going to be in the form of financing. I think that, you know, that's sort of the next part of the no, next frontier is, is are you regarding know, the value for value model. Well, no, I don't know. I'm not sure. What do you mean by that? Well, actually I wanted to bring, I kind of wanted to bring this up when you mentioned, I guess, when we were talking about the metaverse, one of the sponsors of this podcast is a podcast platform called Fountain. And the fascinating thing is that it kind of works like Patreon, def but definitely on a more decentralized level where you can stream support for your favorite creators in Bitcoin. But even the fact that the people listening can actually earn Bitcoin from listening to their pod, the podcast. It's no mm -hmm. joke. They can actually earn yeah, that. Their that's interesting. Yeah. There's, uh, I don't know much about it and I don't know that, um, I'm sure that like, again, there's all sorts of things that I can't even conceive of at the moment. And I don't think a lot of other people are really thinking about it yet, but what I can conceive of in the very near future, uh, especially when it comes to film, um, is the ability for people to participate. Right now, like the, the ways that, that individuals can participate for the most part when it comes to filmmaking is through some sort of Kickstarter or Indiegogo or something where they're not really investors. Uh, they're They're really just sort of, it's like more like a Patreon, like here, get this mug for helping us, you know, reach our goal or something. Um, and you'll get a thanks in the title. And it's mostly for, you know, the unfortunate part of that is most of the time that the average person has access, the, the only things that they have access to are typically things that the market would otherwise reject. And that's why, you know, these people are at their sort of the only resource they can find to, to raise money for their project is to go out to regular people. Um, and I think, you know, while you know we've gotten some some pretty interesting things out of that i think for the most part you know we don't get a ton of interesting things out of that model because you know for the reasons that i you know i just explained if 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 the the film you know had the ingredients to work you know financially and and be out there and be distributed and then it would be a little bit easier to go in more mainstream path with it and you wouldn't be relegated to just raising money on the internet uh, as a general rule of thumb, but doesn't mean you don't get good, important stories told and the film festivals are full of these. Um, but my take on this is I think that the, through like the advent of uh, some of these NFT platforms and and uh, different you know crypto platforms and things that are available through smart contracts and all that, I think it's going to it's starting to open up the door for possibilities for people to actually truly be, you know, not just give money to see something get made that they want, but actually 
be able to participate in it um, and almost in a way vote for the content that you like and then have the ability to to financially benefit um, from it if it does well. Whereas in the past, you know, most of the stuff you do on Indiegogo or Kickstarter or anything like that, and, I, and I'm sure I'm probably, I might be wrong about this, but my take on it is my, my understanding is you don't really get to financially benefit on any of these. Um, you're mostly just sort of donating the money to them. Well, that's why I wanted to bring up something like Fountain to you because I mean, it is, yeah. just, it is another podcasting platform, but I think it's very unique and where it's going is fascinating as opposed to something like Apple or Spotify. And uh, sure, sure. I guess I'm, I will leave it at that, but I wanted to thank you, Kyle, for giving me the time of your, of your day. And I hope my questions didn't come off as a little too redundant or because I felt like I was shooting in the dark because you were just. No, no, no. Me. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I, uh, I, uh, I apologize. I'm mostly just talking about things that are, you know, my opinion on, uh, oh, on various fun. things, that's, but. Uh, I love that you did that. I mean, uh, yeah. like you're able to express yourself on this podcast. Sure. Well, I appreciate it. And, um, you know, happy to chat again at some point. Uh, Oh, and uh, I yeah, appreciate sure. you taking time. Yeah. And I'll be sure to share this episode with you once I upload it. And uh, if you don't, if I don't, if you don't mind me asking real quick, would you mind if I ever sent you any of my material just for your own personal opinion? Cause I know that you said that you have your own production company and I mentioned I'm a screenwriter. And if you ever want to look at my material. Sure. Send me an email and we'll, we can look at uh, sort of, go through like whatever log lines or whatever you're putting together. And then I'll let you know if I think that might, I might see a path or how it could fit, or if nothing else, at least tell you what I think, you know, where you could go with it. Okay. Well, again, Kyle, thank you for your time. I really appreciate this conversation. And again, I'll let you know when uh, I, when this episode goes on. Cool. All right. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well.